0: And welcome to Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast with Renee Hanvin, which is all about inspiring you to start thinking and doing disasters a little bit differently, too. this episode I'm talking with Kate Sutton. Kate's the director of the Humanitarian Advisory Group, also known as HAG, and we're talking about a humanitarian aid perspective on disasters. So a little bit about Kate. Kate is a leading contributor to the humanitarian sector in Australia and the region. She spent over 20 years in operational and leadership roles in international organizations, including eight years field-based in humanitarian contexts. Kate has specialist interest in humanitarian protection and displacement, and technical expertise in research, evaluations, training, and facilitation. Her in-country experience includes long-term positions in Albania, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and Timor-Leste, and short-term assignments to responses in Sri Lanka, Kenya, and Indonesia. Since 2012, Kate has been based in Melbourne as a founding director of Humanitarian Advisory Group. Kate has recently undertaken evaluations of Australia's humanitarian assistance in Syria, Vanuatu and Myanmar. Kate was selected as one of Australia's top 100 women of influence in 2015 and has also recently published work on women in humanitarian leadership, an area of personal interest that has prompted reflection and writing on what makes great women leaders, including published writing in the Australian Financial Review. Kate has a Master of Human Rights Law and a Master of International Development. Kate, thanks so much for your time today.
1: It's really lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Now, I always like to start with where we met, and I've been a really big fan of the work HAG, and I know you're going to explain what HAG means in a little bit, does. (laughs) for a number of years. And I have seen you alongside your business partner, Beth, at many of the informative events that you've run. And when I was thinking of bringing, I guess, different voices and perspectives into the podcast series, I was really keen to have Hag part of the discussions because I think the humanitarian perspective is something that, you know, we don't really touch on too much in Australia, but it's really great to chat with you. Um, And yeah, thanks again for being part of this conversation series. So I'm gonna start with my first question. So, let's just start there. We need to have a bit more explanation. I love HAG, but what does it mean? And can you please explain? (laughs) Why the HAG?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um, it's a great question to start with, actually, because I think, you know, for many people, they find it quite a strange name to have for um, a business or an organization. Um, But It actually we were quite passionate about it um, in terms of what it actually means originally. So the very original meaning of the word hag was actually a wise female orator um, and the other meaning was a hedge rider. So hedge rider being um, the the person in the village who has one foot in the village and one foot in the world beyond and then um, riding the hedge. And so We actually felt that that was a really nice way to capture um, some of the things that we were trying to achieve with HAG in terms of connecting Australia with things that were happening in other parts of the world and particularly humanitarian things. And because obviously we are a women-led business, we um, wanted to emphasize the the strength of women in being able to bring some of these issues um, to the fore. And, you know, what we now have is actually a whole team of hagons in terms of all our partners and lots of little haggets in terms of all the little children. Um, so it, it's been really nice. And it's really interesting because actually in some ways it's become, um, you know, a really great, mar- we didn't intend it as a marketing thing at all. We intended it as quite a humorous tongue-in-cheek thing. But, uh, you know, people now actually refer to the hags and, um, you know, people remember, remember the word hag. And um, so it's, it's really worked for us in terms of the name of the business.
0: I think, yeah, I love it. I think it's very clever. So did hag come before a humanitarian advisory group? Did you do one of those? I'm doing grade one homeschooling with my son and we're using those, you know, words where you write what the sentences are from each of all the words from the start of each word. So did you, you start with hag or did you, did that, was that just an organic kind of evolution?
1: Um, so I think we, we wanted humanitarian, so we were playing with lots of different words that included humanitarian. And when we landed on our humanitarian advisory group and then realized that it was HAG, we just thought that was brilliant and um, uh, spent a lot of time laughing about it. And, you know, I think it's it's probably quite important as any small business owner to... You know, have a bit of a sense of humor and not take ourselves too seriously, that's probably quite central to, um, you know, how we operate as a business and how we want to be perceived. So yeah, mm-hmm.
0: it, it probably came after... Having the humanitarian component
1: in that. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: love it. I love it. And it does, it just reflects the personality of, you know, you and Beth as leaders and also what you do in this really serious um, and very, very important space in the humanitarian world. So the humanitarian advisory group brings, you bring fresh thinking to challenge. So very much like me, you're about challenging the status quo in the humanitarian aid sector. So why and how do you do that?
1: In terms of the why, um, I think we felt really strongly that it's very important to ask if things can be done better or differently. Um, and it's particularly important, I think, for our sector at the moment, because we really are, the humanitarian sector in many ways is in, is in a bit of a conundrum. You know, we have increasing humanitarian needs globally. And this, you know, particularly now with COVID, that's increased the amount of need exponentially Um around the world. And what we also have at the same time is reducing humanitarian funding. So governments are actually reducing their spending on humanitarian aid. And so, you know, you have this really tricky situation whereby you've got a humanitarian sector that's actually not able to reach all the people that it needs to be able to reach and support. Um, And so I think it's important that then there is a role for organisations to step back and ask difficult questions like, well, are we delivering the aid in the best way? And are we reaching the people who really most need it? Um, and what are some of the kind of sticky or more difficult questions that we need to ask? And because we are not operational, um, you know, we do consider ourselves in a really privileged position. There are a number of organizations out there that are doing incredible work in terms of humanitarian assistance um, in a number of countries. Um, but they, are, they can then be compromised in terms of what they're able to say because they're not because they don't want to compromise their, um, their operational arm. Um, because we don't have the operational arm, we can ask all the difficult questions, we can say things that may be considered, um, you know, not not politically um, savvy, or maybe more challenging or difficult, um, but that they're not able to do. So we really want to be able to play that role, I think.
0: And you do that so well. I mean, I've been a a big fan of a lot of reports and I mentioned before the events that you host. So what are some of the research findings that you've discovered recently and published in some of your reports? And can you give an overview of the humanitarian sector at a minute? I mean, you've just explained that obviously there's, you know, greater need and less um, funding. So what are the key areas that, you know, need, I guess, the deep diving of those questions that no one's asking?
1: So there there are a number of sort of research areas that, um, you know, our team gets very passionate about. And maybe what I'll do is just touch on a couple of those as as examples. One of them that we have done a lot of work on is um, a term called localization or locally led humanitarian assistance. So um, typically, you know, uh, and and we sort of go 10 years back, a lot of humanitarian assistance would be delivered by international actors. Um, or or at least that's how it was perceived or how it was portrayed. So you would have large international organizations arriving in countries and being able to to provide assistance. And a lot of the funding and resource allocation would go through those international actors. Now, the reality of any humanitarian response is the people who are first impacted and who first respond are actually the communities themselves um, and the people who who live um, in those countries. And the local responders and the local NGOs um, that operate there, and yet they don't get a lot of the funding or the support, and they very often get sidelined in a response. So they may be there in the first week or couple of weeks providing support to communities, and then you may have international NGOs coming in, and in some cases, they actually override or sideline those local um, actors. And so one of the things that we feel very passionately about a humanitarian advisory group um, is is sort of reversing that and having a bit of a shift in the resources and a shift in the power so that uh, local humanitarian actors are actually able to play that leadership role and are supported to do so. Um, And that's something that, you know, isn't unique to humanitarian advisory group. There's um, been large global movements to try and promote locally led humanitarian action. One of the... um, pieces of work that we've been sort of pioneering and working really hard on is developing frameworks to measure how well that is happening. So how do you actually know whether or not that transfer of power is really happening? And, you know, power is such a tricky um, thing to measure. So, you know, we do really, um, I, I find them kind of interesting research techniques whereby we would um, do a lot of observation in meetings. Um, and just to give you an example of that, we, um, we were in a a sort of humanitarian cluster meeting and we actually looked at who was speaking and for how long. So in a three-hour meeting, there were 12 participants, Um, 10 of those were national uh, humanitarian actors and two were international humanitarian actors. When you actually time how long people were talking during that meeting, we realized that over 60% of the floor time was taken by the international actors. Now these become really um, good ways to illustrate um, whose voice is being heard um, and how much power and influence different actors have in the system. And it becomes a really effective way to challenge it as well. You know, why should only two people in a meeting take over 60% of the floor time? You know, what possible justification could there be for that? Um, so it kind of creates those conversations um, around change and, and sort of helping us think about things maybe, maybe a bit
0: differently. Kate, I love that. I'm going to take you guys to more meetings. That's it. You come (laughs) with me and you can have your little timekeeper because it's so, it is so interesting when you, I guess you go through the process of, you know, disasters and um, I guess different stakeholder groups are kind of activated into their either self-identified or you know needs led roles and you don't even think about those little bits around you know is it the loudest voice is it the quietest voice is it the most relevant voice so that's such a and again a great insight to discover that can have such a big um I guess focus on some cultural changes or behavior changes that need to be integrated, probably in Australian disaster space as well as overseas
1: yeah well that's exactly right, and I think one of the other areas where this becomes so relevant is when we start looking at things like um, gender and inclusion um, but also a whole bunch of other um, inclusion issues and one of our other research streams actually looks at the diversity and inclusion of leadership teams um, so trying to understand if you have a more diverse and inclusive leadership team, does that actually lead to better humanitarian response? And this is something the private sector has done absolutely brilliantly. So they know that if they have a board that is um, gender diverse or has more racial diversity or different professional backgrounds, that they actually increase their um, profit by a certain percentage as a result of that diversity. Now, that kind of understanding and nuance that they've been able to attain over years is something that we haven't even really started to touch on in the humanitarian space and i find it very frustrating because you know we send these leadership teams into these contexts to solve very complex problems and nobody's actually really done a proper look at the leadership teams themselves how diverse and inclusive are they and what impact is that having on the decisions they make um so one piece of research we've just done really recently is trying to understand um, what impact that has. Um, and a lot of this is perception-based data, but it, it's come out with things like, you know, a, a diverse and inclusive leadership team in a humanitarian space is six times more likely to make good decisions if they if they are diverse and inclusive. And, you know, four times more likely to promote innovation. So I think these are the kind of um, research findings which hopefully are really um, pushing pushing for change and for people to think about some of these issues.
0: And as you know, um, Kate, my background is stakeholder engagement, and I'm all about inclusive um, stakeholders, and again, you know, most of our focus is obviously in the Australian sector, and it frustrates me and concerns me that, and I guess, you know, that's why we're creating corporate community and a few other initiatives and models that we have, is because it's the same people sitting around the table, making the same decisions that have the same outcomes, and you know, disasters are changing, and our nation is changing, and we need to be inclusive, we need there we need uh, multi-cultural groups we need different ages and generations and different genders I think it's it's time now to you know have the leadership teams and decision making teams and the activation teams reflect society and reflect all those groups that are involved
1: yeah absolutely I couldn't agree more and you know there's a lot of anecdotal data I think in in the sector around oh if you have more women in your leadership team then they think more about issues like child protection but what I think Um, is frustrating is that we don't have more of that evidence base um, in a more consistent way than just anecdotal data. Um, Because I think you're absolutely right. We we sort of need to have the evidence that shows that when you have that diverse and inclusive team, that they do make better decisions for their community, that they are more representative of the community and understanding the issues that are coming up. So I think it's a big shift our our sector needs to take. I also find it fascinating that that we've become so good, and and this is, I think, in the domestic space as well as the international space, we've become so good at understanding what diversity and inclusion look like in the communities we're working with. So, you know, we will have large handbooks in our sector around how to make sure you're including people with disabilities in your programming without any consideration as to whether or not you're including people with disabilities in your um, programming teams or your leadership teams. So there really needs to be a bit of a shift in, in the thinking.
0: A hundred percent. I could not agree more. And in fact, I um, have talked about the fact for many years and again, since sort of 2011, where the National Strategy for Disaster Resilience was created under the concept of shared responsibility. It's like all it seems to have been since then up until recently is just to basically put a bullet point of a stakeholder. And that's the tick the box to say, well, mm. we've included stakeholders because we've put them in a document, yet there's no inclusion of them in the creation of the document. And then, And there's certainly no inclusion of them because there's no activation from that document. So I I see a few more research uh, Mm -hmm. papers coming from your organisation and we might need to talk about that offline because I think I have a few other ones I could probably add to your list. Excellent. Good. Now, <laughs> much like corporate to community, so hags seemed to begin over a cup of coffee. So James Ritchie, the wonderful James and I had a cup of coffee and we created this crazy concept about driving greater business participation and contribution before, during, and after disasters. Did you and Beth ever imagine, I guess, the difference and the contribution you would make back then? So this is a really great
1: question. I think it's an interesting thing because I don't think you ever know where something's gonna go to. And I think it was probably, you know, the same for you and corporate to community. Like you you come up with this little idea and you think could it maybe would it work you know and then over the first year like you're like wow we're still alive it, it's still going and then we, we sort of got to this point I think and this is probably only a couple of years ago where um, you know there, there was this great excitement around surviving as, as a small business and um, we're set up as a social enterprise but we are a business and it's kind of as a startup like so many of them fold early on and so there was great excitement about the fact we'd survive but I think the fascinating thing now is that it's kind of taken on a life of its own, which is an absolute credit to our team, to be honest. We have an amazing team and they now have kind of taken it further and beyond where I think Beth and I could ever have imagined. Um, You know, their creativity and ideas and their willingness to sort of bring those to hag and and really drive different parts of the business has been incredible. So I would say it's it's become so much more than I could ever have dreamed it would be. And I, I feel, yeah, just so proud of the team and Beth and yeah, the work that we've done. It's, yeah. It's, it's been really lovely to watch it grow.
0: It is. It's a definite credit to you both. And I think you have such um, fantastic team members in your wider collective. And you also have great initiatives of providing internships for up and coming, you know, youth and I think international um, youth in the space too, that can participate in some of your programs as well, which is, that's something I set up probably about two decades ago when I ran a PR agency actually was an oh. internship Program that every month I wanted to offer a place to a, a student in PR and comms so that they could experience it. And I ended up hiring loads of them. But yeah, it's a great platform, I guess, to give the next generation a taste of kind of what it is and also enable you to, or us to invest in that genre as well. So can I just move the conversation a little bit to a different angle? So corporate to community, we're obviously about private sector and in many ways private public sectors so with the countries that you've been working with what have you seen that's been great in the sense of a public and private partnership or collaboration i you know i think it's
1: such an interesting and growing space i think the 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 work that you're doing and the, and the way you're promoting this as an approach is, is incredibly important. Um, and where we see it working well, I think it can be really transformational in the way that we respond to humanitarian work. So one uh, very concrete example would be um, the PNG earthquake in 2018. And it was really unique in terms of the humanitarian context because where the areas it affected were like Highlands PNG, like really, really inaccessible areas. Um, And there's quite a large uh, mining oil and gas uh, company presence in PNG and really the ability of humanitarian actors to respond to that emergency um, was absolutely facilitated by the presence of of the private sector there who were um, willing and able to um, really provide resources and support in a way that the humanitarian community couldn't so very concretely we, we you know reached communities faster much much faster than we would have been able to we um, the scale of the response was much greater than it would have otherwise been and you know the, a lot of that was around logistics support but also a lot of it was around the business leadership being open and willing to do everything they could and to be able to um, allocate resources to make those things possible. Um, So that was a really kind of um, concrete example. And it's been, you know, very exciting, I think, over the last 10 years to see this growth in um, interest uh, for the different sectors to work together. So, you know, organizations like your own, and then there are things like the Business Foundation, which has just recently been established, which is really looking at how businesses really now are are wanting to have that sort of sense of purpose around what they're doing and how they're giving back and how they're collaborating with different actors. And and there are so many more organisations that are facilitating those linkages, which I just think is really exciting.
0: Yeah, it is really exciting. And I think there's a lot of um, evidence to support too, that businesses who consider and um, contribute to supporting stakeholders, not just shareholders, um, actually have greater profit um, returns and, you know, bigger brand equity. And whilst we're in a global pandemic at the moment, the benefits can actually be in the good times. It just doesn't have to be in the bad. So I always end with the same question. So Kate, what would be the two things that you'd like to be done differently in the disaster space? And it could be any at all, either in the humanitarian sector or elsewhere?
1: Okay, so the the two areas for me probably link very closely to our research and some of the conversations we've had. Um, I would love to see more recognition of the role that local communities and local actors play in humanitarian response. And I think that recognition of the role they play needs to be um, not just in terms of saying, thanks, you've done a fabulous job, but actually putting resourcing behind it um, and, you know, in the in the national, um, in sort of other country context, that's around supporting those national organizations that very often will say, oh, you know, they, they don't have enough capacity. And then, you know, you have to ask questions like, well, are we actually providing administration fees like we would do or for any other um, contracted organizations? Are we actually providing them with the, um, you know, correct financial allocations for them to be able to build their institutional capacity and become um, really effective humanitarian actors? So I'd love to see their role better recognized and better resourced. The other area that um, I would really like to see in the humanitarian space, probably both domestically and internationally, is that um, recognition of the importance of diversity and inclusion. And the ability to uh, not only have different voices at the table, um, but actually to, to listen to those voices and to allow them to inform more effective decision making.
0: From my perspective, it is spot on in the sense, and funnily enough, there are some very common themes coming through from all my conversations I'm having, and inclusion and capability building at that local level are definitely strong ones coming through. Kate, thank you so much for your time. It's always wonderful to chat with the HAG team. Today, I've been talking with Kate Sutton, and she's the director of the Humanitarian Advisory Group, and she's given us permission to call her a HAG, about the humanitarian. Aid perspective in disasters. I'm going to put a link to Kate and Hag and a lot of the papers that they've done on our website. So, Kate, thanks so much and I look forward to crossing paths again soon. Thanks so much. Lovely to connect. That's the end of this episode of Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast, which I hope you found to be relevant, informative, and inspiring. If you're interested in participating in the conversation, or to connect with me personally, please visit corporate2community.com. Until the next episode, stay safe and remember we all have a role to play in thinking differently and doing differently before, during, and after disasters.